The Money Show. Other people's money. Well, Indra Nuri spent half of her 24 years at PepsiCo in charge. She was chairman and chief executive for 12 years. And the company that today owns Pioneer Foods, it runs Simba in South Africa, of course, is a global multinational. She grew up in India. She got an MBA from Yale before becoming one of corporate America's very few female chief executives in 2006. And it's a great pleasure to welcome her to The Money Show this evening. Forbes magazine talks about your wealth. That's Forbes magazine's shtick. That's what they like to do. They like to talk about other people's money. They refer to sources of wealth and they refer to you as self-made. Are any of us really self-made? Do you see yourself as self-made? I don't know. I mean, I'm, look, um, I was always paid in PepsiCo stock. And so I lived or died by the PepsiCo stock. That's what they meant by self-made, I guess, because when you're a CEO, you're responsible for creating value. So I benefited from the stock that I owned and the fact that I held on to it. I never sold my PepsiCo stock because I thought that was my future. And have you held on to that PepsiCo stock now that you're no longer directly? Almost all of it. Almost all of it. Um, we're talking to you about your book, uh, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. There it is. I'm holding mm-hmm. it up to the screen because we are filming this interview as well. You'll find the interview online uh, as well as hearing it on the radio tonight. Um, and you talk in your you, – you wrote this book, um, and uh, many chief executives rewrite books because they want to put their perspective forward. They want to tell their story. And I was chatting to Jeff Immelt the other day, and he felt that there were lots of wrongs that need to be righted, and he needed to tell his story about his perspective of – the decline in the value of General Electric during his tenure. Why did you write your book? Very different reasons. I never wanted to write a book. A memoir was certainly not in my uh, frame of consideration at all. I started writing policy papers, one on what do we need to do to bring more women into senior management levels? Because I saw women as a potent talent force, hungry to do better, hungry to have the power of the purse, and Somehow I felt that even in a progressive and a supportive company like PepsiCo, they would come into the company in large numbers, but before you got to the top, the numbers whittled down. And I wanted to understand what support systems were needed for women to be able to have a family and still keep working. Started there. But then it quickly went down to the essential workers because I was co-chair of Reopen Connecticut during COVID. And it became very clear that our caregivers, our cleaning staff, the hospitality workers, all of them um, were largely women who had families of their own and they struggled to keep coming to work during COVID because they didn't have the opportunity to work flexibly. They had to come to the job and sometimes stay in the job for two or three weeks because they couldn't go home every day due to quarantine reasons. But nobody worried about care for their children or their aging parents. So I realized we had this twin problem of care for families who could afford to pay for it and families who just couldn't even afford to pay the high cost and had poor quality care. So I started to work on policy papers on what we need to do as a country to support the care infrastructure. But then everybody told me that a policy paper doesn't have shelf life beyond a week or two. And there's a lot that's been written in this area. However, they said, if you were to inform this care issue through the arc of your life and talk about why it's relevant that you want to focus on this issue, there will be more stickiness and there will be more interest. And so this memoir is not a tell-all, Bruce. It's more of a arc of the life and mm-hmm. lessons. 
including what could I have done better and why am I wired the way I am, but more importantly focused on, therefore, what do we need to do as a society to make it easier for young family builders to do both. Because you make that point very clearly through the book and then you, you conclude yeah. with that point to say America needs exactly. to care more. You say that you know, particularly women in the workplace uh, are marginalized because they have to make choices. It's either family yep. or it's work. How did you... Right transition that because you come from india as a young woman um you you get your mba at yale um you get mm. into the workplace you have your family you your family is growing and you are running one of the biggest and most powerful companies in the world at the same time and you don't seem to have done a terrible job at at parenthood <laughs> um while um ensuring value accretion, accretion at pepsico at the same time Rose, you know i married the right guy and I've got to give him a lot of credit. He was an equal partner with me, supported me when I needed it. And I supported him because both of us were working. And one of the things we both said when we got married was that this is a joint project. Building a family is a joint project. And we will go through hell, lots of ups and downs, but we were going to stick it out no matter what. And, you know, a commitment to the two of us and commitment to whatever family we create was going to be paramount. And to our families, because remember, we come from an Indian family where we also have to care for our elders. So very often, we lived in a multi-generational family where some parent was with us and we were caring for them and they were caring for us and our kids. Uh, and we were trying to, in the early days, make do with them for childcare because we couldn't afford to pay for childcare. And then later on, when we came into more money, we could afford care. So it's a big juggle. I can't you know, to call it a balance would be a misnomer. Is there such a thing? never an equilibrium. Exactly. Is there is there such a thing? Everybody looks for this work-life balance, and it feels like it's the subject doesn't of exist. motivational doesn't storytellers at, at conferences. It, it doesn't exist, does it? Uh, it? It exists if you choose to give something up. If you say, I'm not going to have kids, you could have work-life balance. If you say, I'm not going to get married, no kids, I'm just going to focus on the job. Yeah, you could balance work with whatever else you want to do in private life. But if you want to get married and have kids and, you know, be a good parent, there's no balance. Mm. It's a big juggle. You juggle four or five balls in the air. Something will fall. Just make sure it's not the important ones. It's all important. And create right? a support system. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and create a support system where people help you pick up the balls you dropped and somehow allow you to power through. It's, it's a real challenge. Is one of the secrets of that multi-generational structure. Actually, I mean, if one looks in, in ancient societies, and particularly ancient cultures, um, the idea of parents living with, with children and children with grandchildren and everybody sort of mixing it all together. It works very well in Middle Eastern societies. I think it works well in India. It works very well in many African societies as well. That, uh, Western society has moved away. Old people get old and they get sort of shoved into old age homes. Children get sent off to boarding school and mum and dad go skiing in Aspen yeah. or wherever they choose to go because you know, there's only one life and you must live it. Um, maybe that's the problem or at least part of it. Well, you know, um I benefited from multi-generational living because that's all I knew. Growing up, that's how it was. All families were multi-generational and there was intergenerational responsibility. Every generation cared for the next and the next. Mm. Here's the problem, Bruce. All of that works when the woman was a stay-at-home mom and took care of everybody. Okay? That was the centerpiece of multi-generational living. When the mom now says, wait a minute, families are messy, families are fragile, which they are. We all know that. Uh, the woman wants to work and have the power of the purse and be economically independent because 
when fra- fragility breaks families, the woman is the one that suffers the most, doesn't know how to make ends meet, doesn't know how to support the family, then the woman becomes a villain. She goes out to work, comes back, is not treated with respect, is expected to do the household work also. Many times her paycheck is taken away. So I think people moved away because they said, if we want to create wealth, this multi-generational living is not going to work. It creates more tension than help. Multi-generational living requires a lot of adjustment. I was lucky, surprisingly lucky. Nobody believes me, but I'm telling you, my in-laws and my parents supported us working, both working. My in-laws gave me so much support and said, Indra, keep working, we'll support you, which is very unusual. And so you can say I won the lottery of life on this. Then my mother and my father passed away. My mother helped me a lot. So I go back to the question at the beginning. Are you really self-made? I would say you're not. I mean, none of us, I think, can be self-made without those support systems, whether they support systems at home or support systems, great people at work. You pay tribute to your, your PAs and your assistants at work. Without them, things fall apart really quickly. I mean, that whole village helped me. I mean, I couldn't... Ne- the job is one, but if I wanted the family and kids and be a holistic person, that whole ecosystem gave me all the support and the boosts I need. I mean, without them, I would be nobody. I'll be honest with you. Was the ambition always to head up a global company? I mean, when, you, when you were sitting in India and you had this American dream and you uh, went to Yale, I mean, those sort of environments seem to breed this, this desire for, for, for great success. At what point did that bug bite? To run a big company, you know, that was never in my frame of reference at all because, you know, I was just happy to be in the room of power. I was just happy to be at those tables and the boardrooms. So as an immigrant person of color coming in here, the last thing on my mind is that I might be a candidate to run an iconic American company sometime in the future. I just did every job to the best of my ability. And that's it. I never had a 10-year plan which says, I want to be CEO in 10 or 15. And how do I plan my arc that way? Because had I done that, I may not have become CEO. I'll be honest with you. Because I've been obsessed about the next job and the next job. I just worked on the job I had to get done at that moment. And did it to the best of my ability. And I was surprised when I got the tap on the shoulder. First of all, because I didn't expect that my predecessor would retire when he did. Um, but then that I was tapped on the shoulder, uh, I was surprised. So I think somebody saw things in me that maybe even I didn't see in myself. The, the the decision to accept the job, I mean, the, we all have critical inflection points in our lives. There was a point where you could have gone to General Electric. You decided not yeah. to go. You stayed at PepsiCo mm. um, and, and you followed that path. I mean, and, and a move to General Electric could have been fatal for your career. It was fatal for many other people <laughs> too. Um, you know, you, or I might have prevented General Electric from falling into disrepute. I think it was going that way already. I think it was headed that way <laughs> yeah, already. Yeah, you're right. Um, the, 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 was it fun? I mean, did you, did you thrive getting up and, and facing the challenges of the world in a, in a world that was changing really, really quickly? No, no sooner you've got your feet under the desk, yeah. global financial crisis hits, you know, there is no future for a, for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And it, it's a, you know, the world became quite scary for a while there. You know, Bruce, there are some of us that are wired in a way that makes you come into your element when you have to deal with crises. And I am wired that way. I'm wired that way that goes into every issue, digs deep and zooms out and figures out what to get done, demystifies the complex. So I thrive in those situations. And we're all wired that way. 
And whether I was CEO or the number two or number three, I would have still thrived in that environment. And so I think that when you pick a CEO in a succession process, you've got to pick people who've got the resilience and the capability to absorb enormous amounts of complexity, simplify it, and find a pathway through it. And I think I lo- I thrived on it. I loved it, and I just I soaked it all up. Because once you're in the job, you're in the job. I mean, everybody's watching and waiting for you to fail because you're a bigger story when you fail than if you succeed. Did you so find- you have to be very careful. Did you find it lonely? Incredibly lonely at times. Because even at home, you can't really discuss everything with your husband. You would hide because stuff away from your family. You hide, you'd hide documents and things under chairs and cupboards and stuff. But you know why? Because when you have a daughter who's going to MBA school herself, it means she can understand what I'm working on. Uh, I had a brother who was a money manager and a brother-in-law who was a money manager. So I said, I never want a situation where by accident I leave a document somewhere and by accident they see it. So first of all, I said, I'll come visit you. Don't come visit me. Because they lived in New York. And second, because my daughter was in MBA school, I just didn't want, I didn't want anything to be uh, a problem. So I would take my bag, zip them up and put them in cupboards and lock them up because I just thought I had to be above board on everything. But, you know, I couldn't talk at home with my husband and everything because, you know, I want to have a husband and wife conversation, not let me tell you my problems at work today. Pretty soon he's going to get fed up. And so you can't discuss things with your peers or people who work for you. So you have to be very careful as a CEO how you can handle crisis yourself without having people to talk to. Talk a bit about women in authority. I, I, I can't work out where you stand really because you you don't like the way that you were represented in media, particularly in the beginning because you were represented as significantly other. Here you are as an immigrant, <laughs> as an immigrant from India, as an immigrant uh, uh, who is a woman. Um, and, and those issues are become the focus of all attention. Um, and, and I think you found that sort of disclosure of other quite problematic mm. and you, I think you probably still do well you know they also romanticize me by saying that I wear a sari walk around bare feet singing in the corridors I mean I'm about the most buttoned up person and the fact that they romanticize me that way I'm like why are you doing this why are you making me somebody I'm not okay after five or six in the evening walking around in heels the whole day. My feet are killing. Just try wearing heels for eight or ten hours. No, I kick off my shoes and just walk around the corridors, the carpeted corridors of the executive floor. And when I'm really tense, I'd hum a tune to myself. That doesn't mean that I sing in the corridors and walk around bare feet wearing a sari. That's the way they portrayed me. And I thought that was trying to create interest out of a person who perhaps was nothing but an immigrant from India ascending to the top of a company and just working her tail off. That's not a story by itself. So they made an image out of me, which bothered me because I said, hey, don't make an image out of me, which is not true. I mean, is, is it an inbuilt misogyny in business, in media, um, th- that is the problem? I think uh, media could do a better job treating women executives, but it's getting better. I mean, remember when I became CEO, there were only six women executives. Now there are 41. So hopefully things will get better with more women. Uh, and we're not no longer a, a rarity or an oddity. We're now more mainstream, even though we're only 8% of the Fortune 500. 
we're becoming more mainstream. I saw a report the other day, S&P Global did a report, and a couple of years ago, I think it was Harvard did a report, that companies run by women, and over fixed periods of time, they picked a five-year period or whatever the case is, generally, companies run by women outperformed other uh, uh-huh. S&P 500 companies run by men. Now, that is yes. factual, it's, there's evidence there, so why are there not more women in, not global boardrooms, but specifically, you know, America best, American boardrooms? Um, one, because um, unlike Europe, in America, we don't have, um, in many cases, term limits. And uh, we only have an age limit. And so what happens is once you get on a board, you can be there until you hit that age limit. And many companies don't even have an age limit. So the renewal of the board doesn't happen as much. Mm. And so short of expanding the board to add women, you have to wait for retirements before you can add women. So... One of the things I do mention in the book is one of the issues we have is a lot of the people on the board are people whose spouses didn't work. So they don't really understand the challenges of working families. So we may need to add people through expansion of the board or renewal of the board to bring in people who understand the real issues so they can sort of put pressure on companies to make the required changes to create a, to almost put families at the center of future of work. Did you like the access to power that the job brought? Um, the uh, you, you coincided with the Obama administration for most of your term. Um, there's a fabulous story, and I hope you'll tell it, um, of you going to Chequers. I'm not sure which bri- British Prime Minister it was. It could have been you know, Cameron or it could have been Theresa May. I'm not sure which one it was. Uh, and you were asked why you went to America and not to England, for example, as so many other Indian families did when they, when they, when they left the empire. <laughs> which Prime Minister was that? I'm not, that's one thing I've deliberately kept out. Okay. But um, wonderful, Brian. I've liked a lot of the British prime ministers that I've met. Um, and uh, he said, why didn't you come to the UK? And uh, why did you go to uh, America? And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, because had I come to the UK, I wouldn't be having this lunch with you. <laughs> which is true. Which is true. The thing, I, I actually believe, Bruce, that um, my ascent to lead an iconic American Mm. company, a red, white, and blue American company, can only have happened in America. Why? What is it it about America? I mean, I I wish to ask Elon Musk this question one day because he is South African-born and has done quite well. Um, What is it about America that unleashes that human potential that no other country in the world seems to do? You know, there's a great country music song by an artist called Brooks and Dunn. And in the, it's called Only in America. And the chorus says, uh, only in America, everybody gets a chance. We all get to dance, which is true. Um, everybody gets a chance. Every door is open. It's up to you to make a good opportunity out of that. Okay. There are some groups who might believe every door is not open. Maybe, but I will just tell you as an immigrant, a colored immigrant, a woman that came from in those days, an emerging market, India, which wasn't even flying high those days, uh, the fact that I was welcomed, mentored, supported, promoted, coached, and moved along, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a living success story of what I perceive to be a meritocracy. And I say this with all humility, even though I had issues, don't get me wrong, sure. and I talk about that in the book, I did have issues. But that was 10 or 15% of my experiences. The balance, 80 or 90%, were very positive, and people pushed me along. So I don't believe it could have happened in any other country in the world.
I honestly believe that. Do you think you could have done more in terms of the health food revolution? Um, you talk very openly about how in your early days as chief executive, I think you went to Egypt. It could have been Egypt and the local, yeah, executive, Egypt, yeah. a local executive's wife says to you, I'm not going to give my kids anything that PepsiCo makes. And yeah. it's a blunt and frank and honest a statement to a woman who pays her husband's paycheck. <laughs> she told me that. My husband's yeah. not going to talk to me when I get home. You know, Bruce, I did way more than anybody expected I would do. You know, we went from, I think, uh, better for you, good for you, being 35% of the portfolio to 50% of the portfolio. Even adding Pioneer is, in a way, moving more towards more staples mm. and healthier products. Um, here is the issue. The problem is you have a consumer that likes long shelf life products, that likes products that taste great, which have more sugar, salt, and fat, okay, and are inexpensive, which means that they are more preservatives, yeah. more processed products. Good for you products. Excuse me. You. Good for you products. <laughs> Good for you products because they have shorter shelf life and are closer to agriculture. Don't have as many preservatives and cost mm. a bit more. We try to make them great tasting. So what we have to do is not just put out the products, but nudge the consumer to the healthier choice. That is the bigger challenge. To tell people rather than spend, you know, a dollar on something that might be fun for you, why don't you spend a dollar twenty-five and have something that's really good for you? Let's nudge you to that. And that was the bigger challenge than just putting the products out. Is there a problem with the globalization of food? Um, more and more food companies in the hands of fewer and fewer operators. You mentioned the acquisition of Pioneer, of course, and since um, yeah. recent, recently we've seen Heineken buy Distel. It's not food, but it's 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 a big South African yeah. alcohol producer, African producer. And as we speak mm-hmm. tonight, um, there are reports out of the United States that Mondelez is looking at all of or parts of AVI, which is again got some some leading food brands in South Africa and and snacks brands in South Africa. I wonder if that consolidation is a good thing. So I think we have a lot of people to feed around the world. Okay, and uh, what companies are doing in this consolidation are trying to get more efficiencies in by cross pollinating technologies. Okay, and they believe that the only way to do that is through acquisition. And then bringing global technologies in and feeding more people more efficiently. Now, I wish there was a way to marry that with not giving up local traditions and local food habits. I wish there was a way to do that, Bruce. I don't know the answer. But I always worried about the fact that if you globalize the entire food supply and everybody's eating the same food, everybody's gene makeup is not suited to eating the same food globally. So we would have to adapt our food offerings to what local gene pools need. That's the next frontier. And that can only be done through local company, local communities talking to companies. It cannot be done by me, who's a retired CEO. But that's a real challenge. There are lots of positives with this global consolidation. You get a lot more efficiency, less expensive food, and less food waste. Indra Nuri, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening on The Money Show. Great privilege to have the former chief executive and chairman of PepsiCo exclusively in South Africa on The Money Show.